Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this podcast with Andrew Hunt of Andrew Hunt Economics. The Independent Research Forum was established to promote the best independent research providers. So I'm particularly pleased that we are joined today by Andrew Hunt, a former chief international economist at Dredsner RCM Global Investors. In 2001, Andrew set up his own company, Andrew Hunt Economics. Over the past four decades, Andrew has established an enviable track record that is arguably second to none, both predicting and analysing major turning points in the world economy and global financial markets. Our subject for this podcast is Trump's America and Fortress China. Andrew, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to Andrew Hunt Economics and your flow of funds approach to macroeconomic analysis. Thank you, David, and thank you for your kind words uh, and to IRF for organising this. As you say, Andrew Hunt Economics started about 20 years ago. Uh, I came out of the buy side of the business, uh, so I'd like to think I was reasonably used to talking to portfolio managers and wanted to provide a, a sort of low-key uh, flow of funds-based approach looking at markets. And if there is a theoretical model that I use, it's that everybody, every entity, company, financial institution has an optimal balance sheet that they'd like to achieve, a distribution of assets, a collection of liabilities. And that uh, at most points in time, they won't be at that position. They'll be in a disequilibrium position. And moving from a disequilibrium towards an equilibrium generates flows. Flows generate movements in prices, be it currencies, in asset markets, uh, in the fixed income markets. And what we're trying to do is to predict those flows and, where possible, to measure them. Uh, in the old days, uh, in a financial system that was reliant on the banking system. It was quite easy to do that through the monetary data. I think a lot of people consider us to be monetarists, which I don't think is really fair, but we, we use that data. But really, over the last 15 years or so, with the rise in non-bank finance, um, we've had to become much more creative in looking at non-bank flows. There, were, there was a whole host of lenders out there. Some of the data is available. Some of it isn't. Some of it we have to construct ourselves. I also have to spend a lot of time talking to policymakers and practitioners, um, people that are actually seeing these flows across their desks or, or causing them, uh, in order to try and understand what's going on. The basic model remains the same, but the levels of complexity, I think, over the last 20 or 30 years have increased, uh, which makes it more of a challenge, but also more interesting. Uh, and it does allow you to have a two-way dialogue with policymakers. Um, austerity has hit economic um, data collection. Many of the policymakers are working at least partially in the dark. And if you can provide information, um, you can often get a little bit of a trade on the information. So whenever possible, I like to, to talk to policymakers, discuss things. Uh, and that really has been the purpose of the business. Uh, it's been great fun. It continues to be great fun. Um, I'm lucky to be able to do it. So, Andrew, you have close contacts with many central banks around the world, and you continually assess in great detail the activities of the US Federal Reserve and the other important central banks. So what are the implications of the recent changes at the Fed? I, I think the, the Fed is 
is really in, in a sort of probably era-defining place at the moment. Um, a lot of people, I think, believe that the Fed eased aggressively in response to the COVID crisis, and certainly some of the easing was, was the direct consequence of that. But when you look through the mechanics, the actual transactions that the Federal Reserve entered into, they didn't just buy treasuries. They didn't just do quantitative easing um, in a sort of broad brush approach. They bought specific treasuries. In effect, they were bailing out particular institutions, some foreign sellers, some hedge funds, I suspect. Uh, and as a result, they ended up, uh, and I do think this was endogenous, they ended up buying over $2 trillion of treasuries since the, since the COVID crisis began. Sorry, $2 trillion of treasuries. And that, I think, has A, created a huge amount of liquidity. We've seen the balance sheets of the major banks rising by 19 to 20% in the space of a few months. And that's caused all sorts of problems for the banking system. It's created a lot of liquidity in financial markets, but it's actually gummed up the banking system and made it harder for small companies to get credit. And there's clearly implications for the economy in that. Uh, they flooded the institutional money market funds with liquidity, and the, the institutional money market funds have had to find places to park those funds. That's had implications for the supply of dollars globally. Um, but this is a, I think I can't emphasize it too much, the scale of the Fed's activities since the 16th of March, and the 16th of March is a key date here in the Fed's reaction function, have been unprecedented, have caused wholesale changes in the financial system. And I don't think any of that is changing. Um, just last night, we were treated to Mr. Powell's address to Jackson Hole. Um, and another layer of complexity is the Fed now seems to be being tasked with conducting what amounts to a regional policy. I think it's fair to say that monetary policy in the United States um, is now being conducted according to the needs of the weaker states rather than the average. That is a massive change. We haven't seen any reference in policymaking circles to that sort of regime since the early 70s when Arthur Burns and uh, Richard Nixon were concocting what they were concocting in the Oval Office. Uh, and I think, as I say, this could be an era-defining change in the way the Fed thinks. If we're now going to target the unemployment rate in Illinois, Mississippi, and some of the other states that haven't performed as well, then clearly the risks of an overheated economy are much greater. There's going to be an immense amount of dollars in the system. Um, which will provide funding to the financial markets, but also to the rest of the world. Uh, I, I think any thoughts the United States might have had about limiting the supply of dollars to certain geopolitical rivals, most notably China, uh, that's probably gone out of the window now, um, certainly in the short term. Um, it may all be tied in with the election, and certainly I suspect there is some political considerations at work. But we now have a Fed that is bailing out specific hedge funds by buying specific securities. It's clearly trying to get the economy to recover. But this delving into the intricacies of the financial system and interference, uh, I think, is creating what I call moral hazard markets. Because if you know the Federal Reserve will not just print money, but will, if necessary, buy securities that you need it to buy in order to bail you out, then the incentive to take more risks, to borrow more money, to, to run even higher level, levels of risk in portfolios is 
enhanced. And that's what I think is behind the current melt-up we're seeing in financial markets. And in fact, I've been doing just a little bit, largely back of the envelope maths, but I reckon global credit growth at the moment is annualizing at the equivalent of 50% of annual global GDP. That makes this the biggest credit boom in the history of the financial system. I mean, maybe there were, there were larger ones back in the um, 19th century that we don't have data for, but certainly in the context of the 20th century and the early part of, of this century. Uh, this is simply beyond precedent, and it's creating this flow of funds into markets, which I think is positive for risk assets, but ultimately it's being funded from the dollar, and that gives you some pretty obvious um, implications for the dollar's exchange rate and those people that borrow from dollars, uh, and that, of course, includes the emerging markets. So, Andrew, when we think about the international dimension, how is all this being affected by what's happening in China? China itself is a, is a hugely interesting story. I think China's economy is probably reaching the, the limits of what I call the North Asian development model, which is to have a corporate sector running large financial deficits to fund capital spending, uh, to produce a lot, not necessarily to sell that output at a, at a profit. Um, the, the Chinese corporate sector has been running significant um, cash flow deficits since the Great Leap Forward in the mid-1980s, and that sort of tells you they're not charging the right amount for what they produce. But then again, the Chinese model is about maximizing output and employment, not about maximizing profits. It's not a market-based system. Uh, I think China was getting towards the end of that model, or the viability of that model. In particular, China uh, had found that its banking system had come to represent the equivalent of three and a half times its GDP, covering the financial deficits of local governments, the state government, and most of all, the corporate sector for 25 years had required massive amounts of credit. So the Chinese banking system had become outsized and the Chinese banking system was finding it very difficult to, to fund the asset growth that was required of it to in turn finance China's economic expansion. And 2015, 2016 is where the model really starts to, to show signs of stress. Now, obviously, the model has continued since then, but only because the Chinese banks and Chinese companies, particularly property companies, have embarked on a massive external borrowing spree, primarily denominated in dollars. And this is something of a slip up for the Chinese authorities. Um, they clearly like to de-link from the dollar. Uh, I think they'd like to establish the RMB one day as a reserve currency. I'm very skeptical that that can happen. But since the fourth quarter of 2016, the Chinese financial system and the Chinese corporate sector have borrowed trillions of dollars, I think around about five, maybe six trillion dollars in total. That may be a little exaggerated, but I think it's of that order of magnitude. Um, and the country is, in effect, net short dollars to fund Belt and Road to fund investment in the corporate sector, to fund the property developments, uh, and to fund the infrastructure spending by local governments. I think markets are very unaware of just how much of the funding of that was sourced in dollars. As a result, as I say, China is short of dollars. And that gave the US leverage, if you pardon the pun, on, US, on Chinese policymaking. China did not have a free hand with regard to setting its interest rates, its currency policy, when it had such large levels of dollar-denominated debt. And we saw that back in February. China was unable to ease 
in response to the corona crisis because the balance of payments was weak because a lot of the um, uh, Chinese banks were being asked to repay their dollar borrowings. They didn't have the capacity to lend. So you had a tightening in credit conditions in China just as the crisis hit. But since the Fed is eased, going back again to the 16th of March date, the supply of dollars has become plentiful. Uh, we've been able to trace several hundred billion dollars of dollar-denominated funding, finding its way into China, often through quite securitous routes, often through European banks and, and most of all through Japanese banks uh, and then through offshore financial centers. China's balance of payments has strengthened, and that's given the Chinese authorities freedom, and in the short term, they've eased, uh, and we do have a recovery in China. But I think that the Xi Jinping and the, and the Politburo are, are only too aware that this is a fragility in the system in the longer term, particularly if your relationship with the US is becoming a little tetchy, and you need to wean yourself from that. And that's where this notion of fortress China comes from. So we've seen China changing its relationship with India over water. Um, there's clearly friction over Taiwan. Uh, we've obviously seen events in Hong Kong. Uh, all of that is consistent with this. But most of all, we're seeing China attempting to reestablish its large current account surplus so that it can start earning dollars. It can build up a, a, a pool of dollars that it can repay its external borrowings with if it needs to or if the U.S. Um, decides not to allow them to refinance. So we're already seeing the Chinese current account surplus rise in part because of a lack of tourism. But most importantly, China's now restricting imports. It's actively promoting import substitution while at the same time exporting as much as it can. It certainly has revived the output side of its economy. And we have seen Chinese export volumes picking up. They've been discounting their prices, which is deflationary for the world. Uh, they've been, as I mentioned, cutting their import volumes, particularly of finished goods, not, not of commodities, but certainly of finished goods. That's also deflationary for Europe and for the United States. China's importing less from the U.S. this year than it did three or four years ago, uh, certainly not living up to any trade agreements at the moment. Uh, and while that adds to the friction with Washington, and we're going to have to watch that, it, it does mean that China is succeeding in raising its current account surplus. Uh, and it's part of this siege, this fortress China, that I think, um, in a sense, the, the U.S. is proving rather ineffective at combating. So, uh, Andrew, I think the U.S. is so determined to keep. So, Andrew, yes, what, what what do you expect to happen with regard to Sino-U.S. relations and more generally in the financial markets in the run up to the U.S. presidential election in early November? I think we could probably see a little bit of strength in the Chinese currency uh, in that they are. Uh, currently receiving large flows of dollars. I think they're actively pursuing, uh, attempting to build up a pool of dollar credit, which they're then converting into RMB. This is a short-term buffer. Uh, that's likely to be positive for the RMB at a time when the Fed is, seems to be intent on out-easing everybody. Uh, I think the Chinese equity bull will continue, probably not in an exaggerated form. I don't think the Chinese authorities will want the equity market to, to become too frothy for fear of too many savers in China taking their money out of the banks and causing the banks funding problems. So I'm expecting the Chinese bull to continue, but the authorities to try and prevent it becoming too exuberant. Um, where I think we will see a lot more negative news is while the US has flirted with capital controls 
um, with regard to China, and certainly we're seeing things like public in, public pensions and universities told to divest from Chinese equities. I think the focus uh, for, for Sino-US tensions will go back into tariffs and physical trade. If the US is going to try and improve the lot of its weakest states, um, they're probably going to, to want to boost domestic manufacturing. And I think uh, the Trump administration will probably fire a few salvos um, at China with regard to physical trade, particularly given the, the degree to which China has underperformed on the import targets that were sort of informally agreed with the US a few months ago. That, that, that's an obvious target, I think. But I, uh, crucially, I wouldn't expect the US to go after China's capital account. A few weeks ago, uh, they looked a real possibility, but Washington has backed down on that. Uh, had they pursued that, I would have regarded it as a real risk to markets. But as I say, I think that risk is now receding. I don't think Washington has the stomach to take on China in a capital account war. So, Andrew, can I thank you for this fascinating insight into the service that's provided by Andrew Hunt Economics? If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss your analysis of what is happening in Japan, the Eurozone and the UK. The Independent Research Forum would be pleased to provide a one-month free trial to Andrew's service plus details of how to subscribe to the Andrew Hunt Economic Service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Andrew Hunt.